turn to James chapter 2, and we're in verse 14 this morning as we continue through the book of James. James chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Thank you that you've given us your word, Lord, that this is the abundant life to be in fellowship with you. We pray you'd reveal yourself in a greater way, that you'd stir us up. Father, please send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Many times when people pick up a a newspaper or a Time magazine, one of the first things that they go to is the cartoon section. And why is that? Because it provides humor, provides some laughter, but also the cartoons usually have some kind of message. Well, I happened to see a cartoon recently, and it was of a church, more traditional-looking church, and it had a sign in the front to advertise the weekend message. I'm sure all of you have, have seen that. And so this is what the sign read. The Light Church, 25 Fewer Commitments, home of the 5% tithe. 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. That'd be pretty nice during football season, right? 45 minutes. We have only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws. Everything you wanted in a church and less, light church. So that cartoon, it does communicate a message, doesn't it? If you've been studying with us through James, you know James is not light church. James does not go around the issues at all. He speaks very directly about faith defined. What does it mean to really have faith in the Lord, a genuine faith? And in the section of scripture that we're going to study this morning, we're going to see that he really deals with dead faith. He attacks dead faith. And that's the title of our message this morning, is how do we not have dead faith, but have faith that is alive in the Lord. So let's begin in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? James uses the same phrase that Jesus used. What does it profit? Jesus used it this way. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? And what James is saying here is, what does it profit someone if they say they have faith, but they don't have any works to match their faith, to go along with their works? And so as we're going through our text and finishing this chapter this morning, we're going to highlight four things. So the first one, you may want to write it down and consider it with me, is dead faith talks big. Dead faith talks big because this person makes claims. He says he has faith. In a few more verses, James is going to bring it up again that this person likes to speak of their faith. James is dealing with someone who claims to have faith in Jesus Christ who loves to talk about it. There's not a lack of the knowledge of the scriptures. There's not a lack of Christian terminology. What there's a lack of is living it out in their life. And in fact, though they talk big, they're in rebellion to the Lord. And their life, their lifestyle, their works are completely contradictory to the things of Christ. And so there's this challenge that James gives to that person. He says, What profit is your faith? What value of your faith? What good does your faith do if it isn't accompanied with actions? He asks this question, can faith save him? Can faith save? As you study this paragraph, this short section in James, it can confuse you 
Because at first glance, it may be appear that James is saying that you're saved by works and you're not saved by faith. Does the New Testament teach us, does the scriptures teach us that we're saved by faith? Can faith save you? Yes, absolutely. In Romans 3, 28, it says this, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Very clear. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace through faith for good works. So the message is very clear. It's Christ's finished work upon the cross that saves you. There he hung upon the cross. He says, it is finished. Te telestai, paid in full. And as we trust and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, it's gonna impact and affect the way that we live our lives. So Romans and Ephesians and Galatians, they're not contradictory to James. What is James saying? James is saying this, that a true, genuine faith in Jesus Christ is gonna affect the way that you live. You're saved by faith, but then your life is going to be evidence. Your works are going to be evidence of the fact that you've been impacted by the Lord. I saw God do this in my life as a teenager. I did grow up in a Christian home, professed Christ at a young age, had no idea what that really meant, developed a really hard heart towards the Lord. Now I'm in high school, my freshman year of high school, and God really met me with his unconditional love, his grace, and revealed to me that he loved me while I didn't want to have anything to do with him. I remember the day so clearly. And the craziest thing happened. The next morning, I woke up, and I wanted to read the Bible. Now, growing up in a Christian home, it was like duty to read the Bible. You need to read the Bible. Going to Christian school, Bible was Bible class. You, you got to do your Bible homework. And there was never a time in my life up until that point where I wanted to read the Bible but I wanted to know this great love. I wanted to know this unconditional love. Monday came around, the youth study that would take place in Medford, Oregon, downtown Medford, Oregon, the striving metropolis of Medford, Oregon, this small town. And for the first time in my life, I went to this Bible study with the purpose to seek Jesus, not purpose a gal that I liked that went to the Bible study. That was always my motivation to go to, to youth group. What had happened? God had touched my heart and he'd worked into my life. And that's what James is speaking to. It's like if you throw a rock into a pond on a, a very calm day, what, what's that rock going to do? It's going to bring ripple. It's going to bring impact. So James is saying if the works are missing, what does it say about the faith? Is the faith genuine and is the faith real? But don't make the mistake to think that we're saved by our works. Our works are an evidence of that grace that's been worked within us. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food. So let's consider that. It's the very basic needs of life, clothes and food. It's not all of the wants. It's not that a believer is lacking the wants in their life. They're lacking the needs in their life. In 1 Timothy 6, 8, it says, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. That simplifies life, doesn't it? A little bit. Food and clothing. Doesn't even say a roof over your head. If you have food and clothing with those, be content. But this is a brother or sister in Christ that's naked, doesn't have clothes. 
is destitute of daily food, of beans and rice, the very basic things to be able to survive. And one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? So you see this person in need, and you get very spiritual. Be warm, be filled. God bless you, brother. God bless you, sister. Then to just walk away from the need. I don't know where we've picked this up, but somewhere we feel better if we just throw some Christianese on the need and walk away. Well, I prayed for him. Well, I said, God bless you. Well, I said, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. And then I removed myself from the situation. And we should pray for somebody who's in need. But what if as we're praying for them, we do have the resources to meet that need? We're God's answer to that need. We're able to say, hey, let's go to the grocery store. Let's get some groceries. Hey, let's go get you some clothes right now. And that's where the Lord would want us to move in action. Because this is the second thing to consider, is dead faith ignores real needs. Dead faith ignores very real needs. Historian Paul Johnson speaks of a man named Rocio. And Rocio, he was the first intellectual to proclaim himself as being a friend of all mankind. Rocio said he was a man born to love. In fact, he taught the doctrine of love more persistently than most preachers. He once said of himself, whoever examines with his own eyes my nature, my character, morals, inclinations, pleasure, habits, and can believe me to be a dishonest man is himself a man who deserves to be strangled. Yikes, right? But how did Rocio actually relate to humanity? His father meant nothing to him but an inheritance. His only concern for his long-lost brother was to certify him dead so he could get the family money. All five of his children were unnamed. He never even gave his five children a name and were placed immediately after birth in the hospital for orphans where two-thirds of all of the babies died the first year and only four, seven out of 14, or excuse me, only 14 out of every 100 lived to the age of seven. It is believed that none survived. Rocio, the self-proclaimed lover of mankind, didn't even record the dates of their births. See, it doesn't matter what you say. It matters what you do. We can say we have faith all day long, but if we just simply turn a blind eye to needs of brothers and sisters in Christ— then what's the value of our faith? What is the profit of our faith? Remember the issue here in chapter two was how the church was treating poor brothers and sisters in Christ. If a rich man came in, he got the best seat, while a poor man got the seat in the back. God's heart is for the poor. If you do a study throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and you simply put in a search engine like on biblegateway.com, poor, you'll see God's heart for the poor. His heart is for the widow. His heart is for the orphan. He cares about how we treat people. 1 John chapter 3 puts this in another way. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or in tongue, but with actions and in truth. There's nothing wrong with words. It's not that words aren't important. 
It's that words need to be congruent and backed up with action. With Jesus, what makes Christ's words so impactful to us? It's his actions. It's his death upon the cross, his sacrifice upon the cross that makes us value his words so much in our hearts and in our lives. And so for us, the same is true. Then take just a moment and examine in your own life, is there a need that God's been placing on your heart that he's exposed you to? And the Lord's been saying, I want you to take that step of faith. I want you to put your faith in action and meet that need. Maybe it's like, I don't really have the money, or I don't have the time, or I don't have the ability, or I don't have my life together enough to, to be able to help someone and say, no, today's the day to take action, to put my faith into action. In verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. James is just simply stating the fact. If there's not actions with faith, then it's a result that the faith is dead. Dead faith lacks works, just like a dead branch lacks fruit. Yesterday, we had men of Calvary up in the cafe. Andrew, our junior high youth pastor, he taught on John 15, and he did a great job. was really blessed and impressed by it. The passage there speaks of the fact that Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. If we're connected to him, we're going to bear fruit. And if we don't bear fruit, it's evidence that we're not connected to Jesus. This is the reality. If we have genuine faith in Christ and we believe and trust in him, then fruit is going to come. Now, please don't be confused. Scripture is not talking about a perfect life here. It's not saying if you have real faith in Jesus Christ that you're never going to mess up, you're never going to sin, you're never going to have struggles. No one's going to be perfect until they go home to be with the Lord. If anybody claims sinless perfection, all you need to do is get a big glass of ice water, lots of ice, when they're unsuspecting, throw that ice water on them and see how they're doing on the sinless perfection. It's very deviant, but you can always provoke somebody into sin. Nobody's perfect. I'm not talking about a perfect life. Scripture's not talking about a perfect life. It's talking about a changed life. As we have faith in Christ, then the works are going to flow, and there's going to be evidence of that. Profession of faith requires action and compassion. This is illustrated by a British, an English preacher from time past, but a good friend who had his horse die unexpectedly. And there was a small crowd that had gathered kind of like around a car accident, and now he's out of his horse. He's horseless. So here the preacher takes off his hat, and he says, I'm sorry, five pounds. And he puts five pounds into his hat, and then he passes the hat around the small crowd. Guess what happens? Enough money came in for his friend to buy a new horse. A living horse. That's what this is talking about. We have faith, we trust God's promises and who he is, then we take action upon that faith. We don't just look at the need and, and turn a blind eye to it. In verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. We've got two different individuals here. One who says, oh, I'm a theologian. I love theology. I love to talk about the things of God, probably smoking a pipe. Uh, uh, what does John 3.16 really mean? Did God really die for the whole world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
I'm not sure he really meant that. You know? And then you've got another guy that says, hey, God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. I turn the pages. Of, we're going to go tell everybody about his love. I better get out there. I better share with others. And James is the second. James is the proof is in the pudding. You can talk about your faith all you want, but I'm going to show you my faith in my works. I'm going to show you my faith in the way that I live my life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying theology is not important. Theology is this. It's what you believe about God, and it's the most important thing about you. But if we really believe it, it's going to affect the way that we live. Otherwise, we could be in the danger of just getting to the point where we're really good about talking about theology. We want to know it. We want to study it to impact our lives. The rubber meets the road. Now, I'm not bringing this up to get into this discussion, and I do think there's biblical answers, but there's some inside of the body of Christ where their passion is five-point Calvinism or five-point Arminianism. And if you're not familiar, that's okay. But they get so passionate about their five points of Calvinism or their five points of Arminianism that they can't remember the last time they talked to a sinner that was going to hell about the love of Jesus Christ. They're more concerned about converting the body of Christ to their view than a lost and dying world that goes to hell. And that bothers me, to be quite honest. There's a place for that. You need to sort it out. I think the scripture gives clear teaching on it. But man, if that's become your pet doctrine that you're so passionate about that you can't remember the last time you invested somebody that's going into hell, man, step back and say, how much do I really believe the things I believe? Because if I really believed it, it should move me to the place that I'm concerned with somebody who doesn't know Christ as their Savior. I hope that makes sense. So here's the next point. It's just brain science. You appreciate this. Living faith is the exact opposite. Isn't that profound? So we've had three points on dead faith. So what's living faith? Living faith is the exact opposite of dead faith. If we have faith that's alive, it's going to result in fruit. It's going to result in good works. When we talk about these good works, what are we talking about? We're talking about unconditional agape love. God's love being put into action. Can you look back and say, I'm far from perfect, but God has changed my life, and I care for people in a way that I didn't know before. I'm growing in the love of Christ. Real faith is seen in our works. If someone comes to you and says, I've given you $10,000 and I put it in the bank over here. I think it's Cash Bank that is our neighbor to our left. If you really believe that, you're going to access that money and you're going to use it. But if you go, ah, I'm not so sure about their character. It's too good to be true. For whatever reason, there's something in your heart that doubts that. You're not going to go act upon it. So real faith, genuine faith is going to result in good works. Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, Jesus speaks about good works. He says, You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Maybe you've been sold this bill of goods, whether somebody taught it to you or you just kind of came up with it on your own that God doesn't really care how you live your life. That because we're saved by grace and God gives us his forgiveness, that I can kind of just do whatever I want. And as I do whatever I want, God is going to forgive me. Can I challenge you 
politely and respectfully this morning, how does that fit in with Matthew 5? Those are the words of Jesus. We sang of the great I am. The mountains bow down, the demons tremble. What did he say? He says, I've got good works for you. I care about good works. It's not how you're saved, but it is evidence of your salvation, and it's the way that the Father's glorified. Do you want the Father to be glorified in your life, in my life? Then where that really meets, the rubber meets the road for us, it is seen in good works. Good works do have their place. God does care about how we live our lives. Verse 19 through the end of the chapter, we see these illustrations of dead faith and then of living faith. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. I love the sarcasm there. Maybe you have the gift of sarcasm and you've wondered if God could ever use it. Well, here it is. You've got a proof text right here. (laughs) This is as sarcastic as it gets. You believe that there's one God? You're monotheistic? You're not polytheistic? You do well. Good job. Well, even the demons believe and they tremble. Not one demon is an atheist. Do you realize that? There's not one demon who's saying there is no God. They all believe in God. And in fact, they believe in the right God, the one true living God of the Bible. But again, this is an illustration of dead faith. James isn't saying that demons are saved, that demons are going to heaven, that they're in a relationship with God. But he's showing us that it's more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of Christ. Salvation is an issue of the heart. Demons haven't surrendered their heart to Christ. They don't love Christ. They're not trusting in Christ for salvation. They live their lives in the exact opposition to the mission of Christ. Jesus came to give life and to give it more abundantly, but Satan comes to kill and steal and destroy, and demons are living out that mission. Unfortunately, and tragically in hell, there will be many people who are monotheistic, who are Trinitarian, who are orthodox, and lost because they believe the lie that it was enough to just intellectually acknowledge Christ. I believe that Christ existed. I believe in God in this sense, but they never opened up their heart to Christ. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with the mouth, but believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and allow him to be Lord, proclaim him as Lord, allow him to be the master of your life. It's been said some will miss heaven by 18 inches, the difference between their head and their heart. They're not opposed to Christ, but they haven't surrendered to Christ. It's one thing to say, I believe in airplanes. I believe they exist. I believe they're a great means for transportation. You get there a lot quicker. Sometimes it's even cheaper when you do the math with gas and a hotel and meals and all things. Airplanes are great. But have you ever ridden one? Will you ever get on one? You don't really believe in them. You believe in airplanes the moment you get on one and you trust them. And it's the same with Christ. You can express that with your mouth, but it's believing in your heart. It's trusting in him, resting in him, submitting to him. In verse 20, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? I love the way James puts this in his wisdom. He's saying, do you really want to know? Do you really want to know what works says about your faith? And from verse 21 to verse 24, now Abraham's an illustration of living faith. 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect, and that the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Let's get to the very core of these verses and then work our way out. And the core of it is Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This phrase is used in three different places in the New Testament, in Romans, Galatians, and James. And to rightly understand it, you have to look at all three. Now, I'm going to be honest and chase a rabbit for just a second, okay? Is I have a really hard time sitting through a 45-minute message. So maybe that's why God made me a pastor. Because when I sit down and, and listen to a message, my mind goes a ton of places. And maybe that's happening to you right now, and you're re- being really polite on the outside. But inside, you're like really distracted. And, you know, we don't have, like, all these cool videos to go with all the points. And, you know, I don't do any dancing or anything, which... <laughs> you can be thankful for that I don't do. So what I'm saying is come back from wherever you are in your mind, you know, and get, get with me because my fear is if you're not listening, you won't grasp the truth of this. If you just casually read James 2, you may think that you're justified by works. And so write down this, write it down, put it down on a piece of paper, write it up here in your mind, go back and read it today. Romans 4. Romans 4, one of these other places where this is recorded that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. I'm going to read just the first three verses of Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So it's very clear from Romans 4 that Abraham was justified by grace through faith. It all goes back to Genesis 15. God comes to Abraham, says, you're going to have a promised child with Sarah, not Hagar. And Abraham believed God, even though it was physically impossible When he believed God, God said, I'm taking righteousness and I'm putting it to your account. This is hundreds of years before the law was ever given, that Abraham was justified by faith. It was also 30 years before he put Isaac upon the altar. Many, many years later, God says, put Isaac upon the altar and Abraham was faithful to do it. So God justified him the moment he believed. Then that saving faith worked itself out in works, in good works, and obedience to the Lord. The works were evidence of his salvation. So let's look at the other aspects of these verses. In verse 22, it says, you see that faith was working together with his works. This is saying that his works were in concert with his faith, and that's what the Lord desires from us that our lifestyle would be in concert with the things that we believe, that the grace of God would have touched us and transformed us in such a way. Abraham wasn't holding anything back from God. He placed Abraham on the altar. And I love this, underline this. And by works, faith was made perfect. 
And by works, faith was made perfect. As Abraham obeyed God, his faith grew and his faith matured. Do you think that his faith matured as he put Isaac on the altar? Scripture tells us he believed, even if he killed his son, that God was going to raise him up from the dead because Isaac was the promised child. To hear God's voice and God speak to him saying, Abraham, no, there's a ram in the thicket. How many times has our faith grown because we've chose to walk in obedience, to put actions with our faith? We share with an unsaved family member or friend the love of Jesus Christ, and we're blown away. God opened a door here. It was awesome. We decide to give financially, monetarily. There's a need of a brother or sister in Christ, and we give to that need, and we see God work in such an awesome way as we walk in obedience to that. We choose to forgive, and we take actions of forgiveness, and we see God begin to to set us free. That's how our faith grows, as we put actions with our faith. The other illustration of living faith is Rahab in verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? We just studied Joshua recently. Hopefully, Rahab brings a bell for you. She's a prostitute whose God's heart touched through faith, and her actions lined up with her faith. And she sent the messengers out another way, the spies, the Jewish spies, out another way instead of delivering them over to the army of Jericho. Isn't God good? Here you have Abraham, who's got this nice, clean, pretty past, and then you've got a prostitute, and they're both justified by faith with works that were in concert to their faith. And maybe you're in that place of a really sinful life, and you're ashamed of the things that you do outside of this place, and you're wondering, can God save you and bring you to salvation and transform you? Absolutely. Have a conversation with Rahab. She's in prostitution one day and then comes to faith in the one true living God, and her whole life is turned and changed from the inside out. Verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead also. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Do you remember your first funeral that you ever went to in your life? I'm sure that you do. I remember the first funeral that I ever went to. I was 14 years old. My friend Kim Peck, she was a junior in high school. She was in my brother's class. He was a junior as well. It was a really small Christian school in Southern Oregon. It was her 17th birthday. She'd had a party the night before for her friends, gathered together. Some of the girls had spent the night. It was Sunday morning, her actual birthday. She was getting ready for church in the bathroom. Many of us all went to the same church together. Her dad, Bill Peck, went to get her car, her first car, a used car, new car to her. He's bringing the car home to find that she collapsed and died in the bathroom instantly. An autopsy took about a year to get the results back. Turned out that she had an artery in her heart that was too small from birth. Her heart was a ticking time bomb. She was never going to live to be 45, 65, 85, and she went home to be with the Lord. I remember her funeral, her memorial service, the graveside, and at the graveside, it was open casket. 
And for me, it was actually really healthy in the grieving process. It was the first time I'd ever seen a dead body. The first time I'd ever seen a corpse. And very quickly, I realized she's not there in the body anymore. The, the body was a tent. The body was a housing place for her spirit while she was alive. But the moment that she died, her spirit went home to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There was no life in that body. And if you've seen a corpse, you, you too have gone through that process and you've realized what James is saying. So this is really a powerful point that James is making that without real faith, we're dead. It doesn't matter what we say. Without genuine faith in our hearts and in our lives, there's no life of God inside of us. Dead faith can save no one. It is a living faith in a living God and that living faith that can be demonstrated by the actions of my life. A few things to consider as we close, and the first is this, is don't allow the enemy to bring unneeded, unnecessary, unbiblical condemnation in your life. Remember, he knows the scripture, so he'll twist the scripture to try to get us to live in condemnation. And the scripture is very clear how we are saved. It's through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And in John 6, verse 29, Jesus says the work of God is this, to believe in the one who he has sent. I wouldn't want a believer who you have trusted in Christ in your heart. You've allowed him to be the Lord of your life, and you can look and see a changed life and to walk away from this section of scripture and to beat yourself up and walk in condemnation. Then having said that, I think it's important to ask this question. What are your works telling you? What are my works telling me? To examine our hearts and to make sure that we're in the, the faith. Because there could be somebody who is monotheistic, believes in one God, who acknowledges Christ, that's maybe even a great church attender or a great Christ talker. They love to talk about the things of Christ. But then when you really look at their life, their life is a dichotomy. It's in complete contradiction to the things of Christ. And it's worth stepping back and saying, have I truly surrendered my heart and my life to Jesus Christ? Have I done more than just acknowledging him in my intellect? Have I put my trust and my faith in Christ? The Spirit of God bears witness inside of us whether we're the children of God. So right now, God's Spirit's affirming in you, yes, you're the child of God. You trust Jesus. You put your faith in Christ as, as your Savior. Yes, there is a changed life that's happening. Or the Spirit of God's going, you know your heart. You know you've never opened your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. And this is the good news of the gospel is that Christ does love you, that he died for you and he rose again and he's wanting to save you this morning. And in just a moment, as we sing this last song, please respond to Christ. Come forward. We're going to be available here in the front to pray with you and introduce you to Christ. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. If you're coming from a Rahab perspective, where you say, man, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've fallen short. I'm ready to repent of my sins and put my faith in Jesus Christ. Or if you're coming from more of a, a dead faith religious sense, where you're very religious, you're upright, you have a faith, but you haven't come to realize your need for God's grace to repent and receive forgiveness. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of it. 
we thank you that there is an importance placed on good works, that as we believe in you and trust in you and receive your grace, that you're gonna impact us and bring good works through our lives. And Father, I just pray in Jesus' name that you would bring good works in and through our lives in a greater way. Even as we go today, as we see one person at a time, the importance of how we treat them, that we would treat them with love in word and in deed. Would you